This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Mike Morris. Mike is the principal and founder of Cana Development. Cana Development is one of the largest food hall developers in America. Mike has been in the commercial real estate business for over 20 years. I'm excited to be joined by him. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. So why don't you tell us a little bit about you and how you got into owning food halls? Sure. Happy to. Um, you know, I started Cana Development uh, 13 years ago. You know, we like to tell people we're, we're retail placemaking people and we can take an idea from concept all the way through opening. You know, our, our probably sweet spot is that middle third where it's somebody else's crazy idea that we figure out how to execute it um, down to the point, but not actually operate. Um, and ultimately, uh, as a company, uh, through the years, we started out in entertainment development, um, then got heavily involved in uh development of food and beverage in uh, sports and entertainment facilities. Um, Similar to our work, as an example, uh, in Detroit, uh, we did and were responsible for all the food and beverage and retail that went into uh, Little Caesars Arena for the Detroit uh, Red Wings and the Pistons. Um, And now it's food hall development. And, you know, largely what that is, it's creating places that people want to spend time in and that they know uniquely they have to be in that specific location for that environment and experience. Um, that they feel as comfortable as being in their own uh, their own home, uh, but they know they can never re- replicate that experience. Um, and we like to say that we're process focused, you know, product agnostic. You know, the scale and size doesn't really matter to us. I think right now, you know, the food halls are something that are near and dear to our heart, and something that we've been intimately involved in for for a long time now. The first food hall um, opportunity we had was in late '09, early 2010. Um, and that really caught us excited uh, about what was happening in the food oil industry. And I think our company was as well set up as any to, to get involved. And that's based on the experience of, of myself, but also a couple of the key people that work for us, which ultimately were real estate people. You know, my background, you know, shortly after graduating college, um, I landed a job at the Cordish Company and kind of had, uh, you know, a PhD in commercial real estate development, um, thanks to the Cordish uh, family. And, you know, went from everywhere from strip shopping center, leasing and development to entertainment districts, hotels, residential, um, really a full gambit. And, you know, that gave me an opportunity to really see real estate at a very high level. Um, And at the same time, got involved in a series of restaurants. Um, And at one point I had, you know, was involved in 27 restaurants. And when you take kind of the background of Cordish with that large scale kind of public private, mostly urban development projects, and mix restaurant operations together. Effectively, what you get is a food hall. <laughs> when you when you when you when you you know put them all in a blender and you pour it out, you know it's it's a food hall smoothie. And um, you know what we realize is it's really interesting to us, right? A food hall, by definition, is an operating business with real estate kind of principles. Um, and you know that that background and experience in these large scale mixed use developments, mixed with the restaurant operations components. Um, I think put us in a really unique position to understand how to put these things together. And we have a very kind of specific way that we do it. Um, We like to say we're a white label. Um, If you look at our markets from Boston and High Street Place to the Boris in Philadelphia, Cross Street Market in Baltimore, um, you would look at three dynamically different markets from a development design, feel, energy, 
um, merchandising tenant mix perspective. And each one of our markets is supposed to evoke that one of a kind, unique connection. Um, you know, we're not a branded approach. There are other groups that are out there that do that and, and they work some cases um, and have been very successful. Um, that's just not the way, um, you know, we've approached it. And fortunately that model has worked out really well for us. Um, on the development side, you know, our company now really focuses on two things, very, very large scale mixed use development, where we come in as the retail placemaking slash asset manager, you know, the development world, as you're probably aware of, has become so uniquely subspecialized in vertical use. Um, and most property owners, uh, landlords are looking for that glue that ties the vertical uses together. Not everybody goes to the 10th floor of an office building or the third floor of a hotel. Everybody interacts with the ground floor. And that's really where I think the overall value creation can be and the sense of place in a, in a mixed use development. And taking those same kind of methodologies and processes and applying it in the food hall world um, is the other side of our company. Um, today, you know, we're actively developing mixed use projects um, as far north as White Plains, New York, as far south as Florida right now. Um, and on our food halls, uh, we've developed seven. We have two more in the wings ready to open, eager to open. I can't, can't wait to get them open. Um, and we've got another 14 uh, under construction and development right now. Um, and as far as I know, that puts us, you know, certainly in, in, in the conversation of one of the larger developers of food halls uh, in the United States right now. And we're excited to keep moving. And we see a lot of opportunity for continued growth um, in that industry. Wow. Fascinating. Really had me um, eyebrow raising when you mentioned the Detroit Pistons Little Caesars Arena. I had no idea that you had brought the retail and food and beverage to that uh, arena. That's really cool. Unique. Uh, unique real estate development right there. Uh, not, not what people, when they think of real estate development, what they get into. So really niche stuff, but really cool stuff. Yeah, no, it, that was a fun project. You know, working for the Illich family was, was again, another, you know, world-class experience. They're a great family. Um, you know, working for uh, an organization like the Detroit Red Wings and Little Caesars and was involved heavily um, was really cool. It was about a four and a half year process for us. Um, and, and we're like, we're not like, we're, we're the development company that we have no ego, right? We come in and we're the guys behind the scenes pulling together a really interesting mix of designers, brands, merchandising, putting all kinds of unique deals together, whether it's landlord tenant uh, lease transactions, license agreement, management contract, um, license or JV partnerships to execute, you know, world-class space that people are interested in spending time in. And what happened, you know, through our experience at Cordish, you know, we gained a lot of that in the entertainment world. Um, not surprisingly, a lot of professional sports owners were looking at the entertainment districts and saying, how do I, you know, increase our PPA, you know, our per check average for our, for our ticket spend? How do I keep people in the seat longer? How do I get them here earlier? Um, and looking at the entertainment districts for lessons learned. And that led into a lot of development for us in that world. And we still are actively involved in a number of projects that fall into that. And it's not very different than frankly, how we approach our food halls, right? And how do you create spaces that people want to spend time in? How do you create a strong check average for your vendor matrix? How do you keep people there longer? And more importantly, come back. Um, and that's through you know, everything from design to merchandising, but also programming, social media, um, events, um, and all the things that go into an operating business. I love it, man. It's really fascinating stuff. I want to pivot to a new segment of the show to get to know Mike a little bit better. At Retail Retold, we're calling it Clear the Air. I have three questions for you. Nothing to do with real estate, nothing to do with food, nothing to do with restaurants, nothing to do with retail. Okay. When was the last time you tried something for the first time? 
That's our first question. Wow. Um, so uh, most of my friends and most people who know me know that I, I played very competitive lacrosse in college. Um, I decided in my early 20s to, to mostly hang up my stick, um, that if I was going to be a knucklehead and get hurt, I was going to do it on my own account. And I, I started <laughs> playing a lot of tennis. Um, so I became quite competitive at tennis. I'm still pretty competitive um, in, in tennis. Out of nowhere, uh, a friend of mine over the summer uh, invited me to, to, to pick up pickleball, which if I'm being really honest, um, my only association with pickleball was that I had to be double the age that I currently am. Um, and <laughs> the reality is that couldn't have been farther away from the truth. Um, it's actually a very fun dynamic game. You get a quick workout in, um, and it was, you know, it's, it was interesting. I, I, I didn't appreciate, um, how fun of a sport it could be. Um, and I did pick it up this summer and have, um, enjoyed playing. So pickleball. I love that answer. I am sports fanatic. I love niche sports and I love mainstream sports. I know nothing about pickleball. If one wants to get into pickleball, is that something that's, you know, easy to get into? Yeah. I mean, look, it starts the hand-eye coordination. Um, it, it also starts, you know, uniquely, look, we're both in commercial real estate at some level. You're, you're probably com pretty competitive in nature. So am I. So if, if you're competitive and you have reasonable good hand-eye coordination, you'll figure it out. And the great thing about pickleball is you don't have to be that good. The court's small. I, I mean, I meant more, if I go online and I'm in North Jersey and I go pickleball, North Jersey, am I going to find some stuff? Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. And, and it's interesting. I thought the same thing. And the reality is what's happening now is that a lot of people are realizing that like to play tennis, right? First of all, it requires um, more space physically and, and kind of frankly, more expensive equipment. I mean, you can get into pickleball for much less than a traditional tennis racket and tennis balls and things like that. And the ball itself lasts a lot longer. You know, I have neighbors that have now picked up pickleball and are now because of COVID more or less have built pickleball courts in their back, in their driveways, right? A flat driveway is all you need. You need about 30 feet by, I think it's like 25 feet or whatever of space. Um, and you could be playing pickleball in your driveway um, and your kids could be picking it up. It's relatively easy. And now what's happened is there's all kinds of uh, environments. Actually, there's a couple of, of commercial organizations that are now rolling out indoor pickleball facilities with restaurants and bars and trying to make it more into a social experience, um, particularly in the Southeast. But um, we're seeing that actually pop up across the country right now. Are we going to see this at the next Cana Development Food Hall? I, I wouldn't say the next one, but <laughs> we, look, we are, we are all about from a food hall perspective for a second. How do you create social engagement? Um, and it's not just about the food and beverage, right? It's about all the other layers of art gallery and space and events and programming and, you know, uh, cooking classes and yoga. And we're, we're actually around, uh, rolling out goat yoga. Uh, apparently there's nothing better. Uh, it's very relaxing and everybody loves to take an Instagram picture of a goat, apparently a baby goat, in fact. Interesting. Um, and I think that, you know, can we put in, you know, uh, pickleball? Absolutely. Can we put in bocce, uh, ping pong, spinning, uh, we actually had uh, for a pop-up for over a year in our project in Philadelphia, an escape room, right? Again, all kinds of different social engagement layers to make people interested in spending time in our properties. That I love that answer. And I'm going to look up pickleball and check it out. <laughs> there you go. Question two in clear the air. What is one skill you don't possess, but you wish you did? Um, all right. I'm going to answer this two different ways for a second, if I can. Um, from a technical side, I can't draw. I wish 
I had an ability. Um, I can, I can doodle with the best of them, but I can't technically draw. I I've, I've used the crutch of hiring world-class architects and interior designers to create the initial drawing and then allowing me to work with them to filter it into a product that we can all be proud of. I, I wish I was technically able to draw and take my ideas and put them on paper myself. Um, from a, a tactical side, um, most people that know me really well would tell you that empathy is not my strong suit. Um, you know, and you hear, you know, people like Gary Vee and others talk so much about it and it's important, right? And, you know, it's something that particularly as we've grown as a company and then and particularly going through a pandemic like what we've had, you know, we have over 179 vendors in our portfolio. Um, to go through and really appreciate where those people are coming from and try to work through what's happening right now both on a business perspective, but also a personal perspective, you know, I think is incredibly important for me as a business owner um, and, and for what we do as a company. Um, and, I, you know, empathy has three different levels, right? Cognitive, emotional, and, and compassion um, that all bring in, in their own right um, important values to a business owner. And, you know, that's something I'm focused a lot on this year. You know, I'd say, Taking that even a step further than empathy would be like attunement. You know, I, I told everybody um, in my company that my word for, for 2021, we have this, you know, I think a lot of groups have, you know, pick a word that kind of establishes your focus for the following year. And mine is attunement, which is basically uh, the reciprocity of empathy, right? I think it's as a challenge, it's one thing to be empathetic. It's another to really reciprocate that. Um, so we'll see. It's early in the year, so I still have a lot of, a lot of time ahead of me, hopefully, to improve on that. One, I love the artist thing. I am, I can't draw a stick figure with a ruler. I am not musically inclined either. And it's a, that's a really vulnerable answer and empathy. So I, I appreciate that. I think it's unique. I, I love the, the word theme for the year. My theme is think big, act small. Personally, that's what I'm focused on. Uh, if you've read the Jason Jennings book, it's from the early 2000s, but uh, really, really cool answer. Thank you. Last question of this segment. What is something you think most people agree with, but you do not? So I would tell you that I have a specific answer in our industry for a second. Um, in the food hall industry, almost all food hall operators really other than us um, exclusively operate their bars. And um, they, they do that um, to offset, look, uh, food halls are expensive operations um, and the overhead incurred in the operation. Most of our, um, uh, most other food hall operators um, choose to use the, the bar business um, as a means to offset those costs. Um, and philosophically, we've taken a very different approach. Um, we have full service bars in our markets. We also then sprinkle out um, liquor, beer, and wine throughout our markets um, where applicable um, to be to create a better consumer experience. You know, frankly, I mean, selfishly, right? If I'm if I'm going to a stall in one of my food halls and I have my three kids with me, and I'm going to the burger operation, and the person at the cash register cues me correctly, hey, Mr. Morris, great to see you. Thanks for your order. Would you also like a beer with your burger? You got a 50-50, okay, maybe better than 50-50 chance that I say yes. 
right? <laughs> I'm not taking my three kids after we order a burger and go to a bar to stand in another line to get a beer. This is not happening. And, and I believe that that adds value to the burger operation. It creates a better consumer experience and ultimately really doesn't impact the bar. Um, many other operators would, would argue that that's a different philosophy. I love the real estate angle on that in particular. I love the, the food hall angle on it. So thank you for being our first guest to play part in the clear the air segment. Sure. There's good questions. All right. Well, I appreciate it. It took us a while to come up with them, but I appreciate it. All right. Food halls. It is something we read about in headline news often, but I don't think too many really understand them because they're so new. Big question. What's the state of food halls right now? Sure. Well, let, let, let's get one. Let, let's clear the air for a half a second. Let's so food halls have existed since uh, the Roman Empire. So sure. they're not really that new, if we're being honest with each other. Um, I think the challenge really is that there's so much misnomenclature, right? There's so many people using the term food hall Great and point. applying it to so many different things and different experiences that it's difficult to make apples to apples comparisons. Um, for a half a second, if I can, let me, let me tell you what my kind of definition of a food hall is. So Ultimately, a food hall creates a sense of discovery. It's a collection of, of food businesses, not exclusively, um, largely focused on makers, largely focused on the people behind the counter that are actually making a specific product that is unique to that time, place, and location, um, that the seating throughout the market is not rectilinear in one area, um, which is a huge differentiator between a food court and a food hall, um, that the physical space is not rectilinear. There's a sense of discovery. And largely the brands are unique to the marketplace as opposed to a food court where your brands are ubiquitous largely, right? And, and we all know the collection of brands that we typically see in a food court. Um, I think from there, there's lots of differentiation, right? How much non-food can you go into? How much non-prepared food can you go into? Um, what's the size and scale? I mean, as, a com as an operator, we range from 5,000 square feet up to 30,000 square feet. We have a number of markets. I think the sweet spot, generally speaking, is in that 15 to 20,000 square foot range, typically in most markets, although that can be adjusted. Um, one big uh, pet peeve of mine, while, while we're like really throwing out uh, terms here, there is no such thing as a ghost kitchen food hall. <laughs> That's just, and, and I have lots of friends who are in the ghost kitchen world. I, I just, and, and I, I hope this doesn't ruin our relationship, but you know, it, it's gotta be said. Um, a food hall is as much about the overall hospitality experience as it is about the physical space, as it is about the blend of merchants, as it is about the seating or, or delivery or takeout, it's all of those things. A food hall can have a ghost kitchen component to it. A ghost kitchen can't ever really be a food hall, just by simple fact that they don't have any true direct interaction with their physical space and the consumer. Um, I think We'll, we'll get off of that horse for now, but well, to come well back. you said a ton there. Let's unpack that because my next question is, what is the difference between a food hall and a food court? Is it just the shape? No, I look, I think that, so there's lots of nuances, but I would break it down specifically into three categories. Partially is, is the overall layout, right? Food court, traditionally rectilinear, common area seating in the middle. Food hall, traditionally non-rectilinear, 
seating you know, spread throughout the space. And there's a sense of discovery. You can't walk in the front door and you see 100% of the brands and seating and everything. Um, so part of it is layout. Part of it is, is brands, right? So in a food hall, you have a collection largely of makers, largely of vendors and tenants, um, businesses that are unique to that space um, and, and that operation. Whereas in a food court, you traditionally see a, a number of ubiquitous brands throughout every food court, right? And, and those are largely national brands. And that's not to pick on them. There's a time and place for those operations. Um, you traditionally don't see them working out in a food hall, right? A food hall has that, again, going back to the layout, that sense of discovery, that uniqueness, that having brands that you can find anywhere um, erode that general kind of hospitality component and feeling. If I were to unpack that even further, to make it simple, could we say the three biggest differences are shape, discovery, and uniqueness? Sure. You said it better than I did. <laughs> I, I just unpacked what you said. I don't think I said it better than you. You said a ton there, but that I think that'll be very helpful to the listeners because I am big on precision of language, and I think the nomenclature matters. Absolutely. And I, I think that's a really strong distinction between a food hall and a food court. You did mention one other thing. What are food courts? I'm, I'm sorry. What are the typical sizes of food halls? You've mentioned a very wide range there. So what are you, what are you seeing today? Yeah. Again, I think what we're seeing is, is similar to most. I think on the small scale, the most, uh, most end up somewhere larger than four to 5,000 square feet. And the large, largest of which would really be um, the food hall that the food hall group is developing in Nashville right now, which is over 75,000 square feet. Um, in general, your average is probably 20,000 to 25,000 square feet um, in most, you know, across the country right now. Very helpful. Yeah. We had this pandemic. We're still in it. Obviously, that affected food operators all over the country. We've all read the news. What has been the impact on food halls in particular? Yeah, I mean, look, th this has been the last 12 months, right? If, if, if the word for Mike Morris is attunement, the word for the last 12 months in the food hall world is pivot. Um, I mean, it, it's every two to three weeks and in every market, it's been different, right? Seating capacities and overall restrictions um, in every sub market has changed on an ongoing basis throughout this entire period. And, you know, Fortunately for our food halls, um, we were as well set up as most uh, in the food and beverage hospitality industry to pivot to delivery and takeout. Um, and, and that buoyed a number of our vendors. You know, the challenge, candidly, operationally, our vendors in our food halls pre-COVID were experiencing extremely successful volumes that you simply can't replicate through a delivery model. And again, it's not to knock delivery. There's just an efficiency that you have when you have a consumer waiting to will and wait in a line and you're cranking out numbers in addition to having delivery and takeout. So we were very fortunate with a lot of our vendors that we were able to do that and pivot into the delivery takeout world, but their numbers are way off what they normally are because of the restrictions and capacity limits. And frankly, what we've essentially come to the conclusion of is essentially any version of the capacity restriction issues mean that the economics of, of the food hall and frankly, retail world and the hospitality side don't work, meaning everybody's taking a haircut. There, nobody's being made whole in that vertical right now. 
um, based on the fact that there are restrictions and, and um, capacity issues at play. Um, and so that's the challenge is making that work. And largely, you know, frankly, we've been working hand in hand with every single one of our operators and been having weekly or monthly calls and working with them to be as flexible as we can. We've been very fortunate that, you know, the way we've structured our food halls and the partners and clients that we have on the, um, on the landlord property side, um, get the fact that we have to be extremely flexible uh, in working out, you know, arrangements with every single one of our operators to hopefully maintain them, knowing that eventually this is going to be over, right? And macroeconomics, you're, you're going to come out of this with less competition, stronger labor, and pent-up demand. And, and that largely should translate into success. And, and how long does that take, though? I don't think it's a light switch moment. You know, I don't think we just turn around tomorrow and, you know, things are back to normal. There's going to be a ramp up period um, and a buildup and lots of things that play into that. And every market is going to be a little different on what's driving those forces. And we just have to be as responsive um, as we can be and as empathetic as we can be to our both our vendors and, and the consumer. Everyone took a haircut. I think that resonates with a lot of people. It was uh, a tough year and I don't think it was just hospitality and food courts, but it feels like that would be a market that really had some challenges and seemingly you guys have figured some of them out and still working through others. I want to go back to the beginning a little bit. Talk about economics of food halls a little bit and, and not detailed, but is it similar structured to other real estate is it a typical lease with one of the vendors? They pay rent just like in any other place. Are you seeing more percentage of rent, or percentage of sales type rent deals? What are what are the typical economic structures we're seeing in food halls today? Sure, um, there are essentially three models. Um, you know, one of those models is more what I would call the almost the public market model, um, which, by the way, we operate public markets as well to food halls. A major difference between a food hall and a public market, um, obviously, typically a public entity owns the property. Um, and in most public markets, they serve a, a true community need and likely have non-prepared food product, um, meaning a butcher shop, seafood monger, um, bakery, things like that. Um, but in that model, your uh, rent model, because you have vendors that are not selling prepared food, um, you tend to have fixed rents um, similar to what you would see uh, in traditional retail, those rents tend to be, you know, trying to capture an occupancy of a similar retail six, eight percent occupancy costs. Um, so they're lower and fixed, and really generally don't have um, percentage rents tied to them um, in the non-prepared food world. And it's analogous to like a grocery type vendor, right? On the far Thanks. other side of that spectrum, um, you have vendors out, you have operators out there. Um, you know, I think it's well documented that, you know, the timeout group, as an example, um, is, is a percentage rent only model um, where they effectively build out um, their stalls. They effectively, you know, curate an incredible selection of chefs. Um, the chefs come in with, you know, their knives and, you know, stock for food and everything else is taken care of. And they collect a percentage uh, of the sales of the business as the operator food hall. Um, and that's typically a high number, you know, I mean, it's anywhere between 25 to 30% on, on average, from what I understand. Um, we have a little bit, our perspective is kind of a hybrid model, frankly, um, in that what we do is uh, we look at our markets and we basically build out a merchandising list and based upon a specific use in a specific space, identify what we think that business can generate on a gross sales perspective. Our year one rents 
our base against a 10% projection against what we think they can do in sales. So if we think the burger operator can do, you know, $500,000 in a year, their base rent's going to be $50,000 for year one. We then have apply a percentage rent equation. Um, and it comes down to, do they sell prepared food? Do they have a hood? Do they have liquor or alcohol sales? Or do they only sell liquor or alcohol? And it's a sliding scale in the percentages that range from 10 up to 16% against the percentage. Um, Pre-COVID, we were seeing most of our vendors about 75% in the percentage rent category for us, um, which is healthy and strong. We believe that our model of this hybrid approach, um, we see less turnover um, because frankly, our occupancy costs in general are somewhere in between to the traditional retail model and the percentage rent food hall model. And so because of that, I think we have a little bit more cushion for our vendor um, and, and a little bit lower kind of break point. All of our numbers, by the way, the biggest difference between your world, right, in traditional commercial retail um, and our world in the food hall world, most of our economics are gross. You know, whereas you're you're generally charging triple net rents, right? Um, KM taxes, insurance, maybe That's a marketing right. fund. Um, so our model is a little different. When we charge our 10% number or whatever that number may be to our vendor, um, that's a gross rent um, net of utilities that are separately submetered and, and generally speaking, uh, directly uh, charged the vendor uh, and marketing fund and what we call our operational pass-throughs. So that's um, uh, things like hood cleaning, pest control, grease interceptor cleaning, where um, those are things that the operator would have to do on their own anyway, but we have the we can create the value for the operator because we have this collection of vendors. Um, so you know, in most of our markets, we have anywhere from 12 to 20 vendors. We can go to a, a hood operator, a hood cleaner, and say, hey, instead of a one-off, give everybody a, a, a deal, let's talk about doing everybody and we'll manage that for you. So ultimately we tend to get better pricing for our vendors and we pass that through. Literally that value gets back passed uh, to, the, to the vendor themselves. But what we get the benefit of is that the burger operator isn't cleaning out you know, their grease interceptor at nine o'clock in the morning next to the coffee shop. Right. And we can help kind of art, you know, work that out where it's getting done at the most efficient time for the market on whole. And the, in return, the, the individual vendor gets the value of, of hopefully a better price. And that's typically what ends up happening. That was great insights. I think the listeners will find that extremely helpful. I want to move to the a little bit of the structure. Those are some interesting economics because we, we see a lot and you hear a lot about, and you mentioned before, there's a landlord, maybe there's a developer involved, maybe there's, and then there's the vendors, maybe some of the developers or the operators of, of some of the vending, the vendors inside. What are we seeing typically is like the structure? You have a food hall and who are the players that have an interest in this food hall? Sure. So, you know, simply put, there's basically two models. Um, you know, the, the first model is uh, your traditional landlord tenant, third party arm's length lease transaction, right? Where the food hall operator signs a lease, negotiates a, a rent that's traditionally lower than normal or you know, below uh, market, so to speak, um, traditionally gets some sort of investment, TI, tenant improvement dollars, tenant allowance from the landlord, and they're playing arbitrage, right? They're saying, hey, what I have to pay the landlord and what I can collect from the vendors minus my expenses for operating is, is my business model. Um, if I'm being honest, 
uh, that A, that's not our business model. Um, and B, most of the third-party groups that were doing that model have largely moved away from that in the last 12 months for fairly obvious reasons. Um, and I don't think that that's going to change anytime soon, frankly. I think there are fewer and fewer groups out there. I mean, we're talking about giant spaces, right? You know, in some cases, up over 75, 80,000 square feet. Um, to take that kind of, of risk and play an arbitrage game, you're, you're starting to look at, you know, similar situations to co-working. And um, I think more and more of the operators are realizing that in a tenant landlord lease transaction, um, the risk reward is simply probably not there. Um, the other side of the, the, the structure um, really is a, is a management company structure. Um, you know, similar to a hotel management group, right, where they come in as an operator um, and they develop lease and or operate the market on a fee basis. Um, candidly, our model's kind of a hybrid. So ultimately, we're, we're more on the management side, right? So um, we get hired to come in, develop, lease, operate the markets that we're involved in. Uh, separate from that, though, uh, if there's an opportunity and it makes sense, I'll invest, either through deferred equity, uh, def taking a fee uh, or deferral of our fee into an equity position and or actual cash investment into the project. You know, candidly, um, if you're looking at our existing portfolio right now of, of food halls, it's almost 50-50. About half of our food halls, we've been a fee-for-service model management contract. And about half, we've done the management, but I've also have equity in, in the food hall operation. Um, and a couple of those, I actually have equity all the way into the property as well for what it's worth. Um, it just really depends on our on our opportunity. You know, candidly, you know there are food halls that are ultimately meant and can be profitable within their four walls. And in those deals, we'll invest. <laughs> you know, we'll put our money in. Um, we've we've been involved in a handful of food halls and markets um, where either the overall structure or size of the investment doesn't work for us, and or frankly, it's not being approached. Uh, with the need for those for that business so to was generate it just like an amenity. Level. It's an amenity. That's yeah. what it is. It's just and, like an and it's, amenity. You're leaning into the value creation. I mean, ultimately, we know now because we've done enough of these that a well-executed food hall can traditionally increase, you know, per square foot office rents by three to seven dollars a square foot in the building that you're in. Um, we know mark-to-market rental increases in the residential side can go up between eight to 12% year over year, as opposed to comparable project across the street that's increasing mark-to-market two to 3%, um, because ultimately people wanna have that amenity and it's unique. Um, we've also seen landlords choose to amenitize entire areas, right, with food halls. Like we've had a couple of groups that have approached us or landlords, one we're actively involved in, that they they looked at this food hall as how do I amenitize a submarket? Not just the building, but they went and bought millions of square feet around the property and said, well, if we create this, this entire submarket is going to be amenitized. And hopefully we see a trickle up, um, you know, in that entire portfolio. And, and they've been fortunate to see that already. So, wow. Fascinating. Do you see food halls ending up in suburban America, traditional suburbs? Absolutely. And, and it's already happening, frankly. You look, I think. There's a couple of different things that are going to happen somewhat because of COVID and the pandemic and somewhat just because of the natural growth of where we are in the food hall world. You know, food halls, well, yes, and I was kidding you earlier, have been around for, you know, thousands of years. The reality is that the current wave is, is really started in the last 10, right? And, sure. you know, 
I think there's still natural growth in front of us, um, particularly in, in tier two and tier three you know, markets across the country. Um, I think there's a huge opportunity in the suburban product and university um, you know, college markets um, that I think people are just starting to see, you know, a kind of a hybrid for that, right, is for us, you know, our work in like High Point, North Carolina, where we're, we're going into an urban market, but, you know, it really trades more suburban than urban. We happen to be pretty close to the university, and we see a synergy there of, of destination with lack of competition and an opportunity really to kind of be the big fish in a medium pond. Um, similar work that we're, we're seeing right now in Greenville, um, North Carolina, right next to ECU uh, University's facility. I think there's lots of those opportunities that are still to be untapped, frankly. Um, I also think that there's going to be an opportunity here in the next year or so, you're going to see a roll up in the, in the food hall world. You know, there, there are lots of operators out there that have done one-offs um, that have come to the conclusion realization that um, either it wasn't probably the best use of their time, didn't make sense, or frankly, it's too complicated. Um, and you're going to see, I think, a couple of groups out there kind of picking these things up. Um, and, and some of those are both suburban and urban. Um, I think figuring out the suburban model obviously provides um, a lot more opportunity long term, um, because frankly, there's just more suburban markets out there than urban markets. Um, and so we've been spending a lot of time and working on that and also hybriding the model. Um, as a sidebar, you're also seeing a number of, of the uh, department store groups, right, saying, how do we break these boxes down and, and put a kit of parts together um, that can be stable and a long-term reinvestment opportunity into them? And I think a food hall component makes a lot of, se a lot of sense, right? Um, I don't think it can fill the whole box or should it. Um, but I think, you know, the creative workspace, experiential entertainment, retail, um, and other kind of uses in concert with a, a food hall component could be pretty successful in a lot of those, you know, suburban box sites. I hope you're right. That'll be interesting. My wife and I would love a food hall by us if, uh, if that comes to fruition and it starts to scale out in suburban America. Uh, I will stay tuned on that one. Yeah. Me, look, we... We see that there's an opportunity, and and I think you guys um, are are not exclusive in your interest for that, right? I think the average consumer is looking for their an ex experience, particularly in a food and beverage perspective, in their suburban submarket to become elevated over the last couple of years. I think it's become pretty stale, um, and I think there's lots of operators, not just food hall groups, um, looking to solve for that. Um, and I think food hall is just one element that we're absolutely going suburban, and you know we're already seeing other groups do that as well. That is terrific. I'm looking forward to it. I am glad that we're still going to see food hall growth post pandemic. I am sure it'll be changed some, but I am excited to keep seeing successful restaurateurs and chefs, uh, you know, deliver food to us in unique ways. So that is very cool. We are going to take a quick break here. And now a word from one of our sponsors. Over 80 years of architectural practice, NWS Architects and its sister MBE firm, Chahada & Associates, are committed to the visions, budgets, and schedules of their clients. Incorporating the best in architectural sustainability, licensed in 48 states with a 98 percentage rate, it's easy to see why clients such as DLC Management, Brookfield Properties, Dollar General, and many major junior anchor and anchors trust NWS Architects with their projects, large or small. 
Call Sanjeev at 312-735-7123 or visit nwsaarchitects.com to learn how they can provide value for your next project. And I want to get to another interesting story. We call this the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. You have a oyster oyster bar in Baltimore you want to tell us about. What is the name of this oyster bar? It's called the Local Oyster. The Local Oyster in Baltimore. Tell us the story of how that store ended up, how that restaurant ended up in uh, Baltimore. Yeah, I mean, I just love the story. It's So um, the, the owner is a guy by the name of Nick Showman. And um, I literally, so there's a, a relatively famous street in Baltimore called 34th Street, uh, made famous by its kind of over-the-top holiday lights. So it's a series of bro homes that have been decked out for years now. And it's kind of a mini tourist, local tourist market for the holidays. People drive by, walk through, and it's just, it's a fun place to take your kids. It's a fun place for nostalgic purposes, right? And I'll never forget, um, this was in 2014, Um I came up to the market with my kids, um, three children, right? And uh, there's a guy sitting in front of the hardware store at Keswick and 34th, right at the entrance of 34th Street, right? Doing buck a shuck, sucking <laughs> horses on the corner for a dollar. Mm-hmm. And the guy was just awesome. Like he was, first of all, he's a, he's a great guy, great oyster shucker. You can't meet this guy and not walk away just like excited about life, right? Um, and those people so are rare and I love meeting those people. Yeah. Like you just, and, and look, we, we see all kinds of personalities in the retail world and particularly the hospitality world. But when you have somebody who, you know, has an incredible product, has incredible passion and can evoke that kind of emotional connection, like you're nailing everything at that point. Right. And, um, you know, we, we started, I started a conversation literally with him on the corner. Right. And, he had, unbeknownst to me, had been having a conversation with another gentleman, Patrick Hudson, who owns Chu Chesapeake, which is an oyster farm uh, down on, on, uh, on the Chesapeake Bay. And they had been playing around with this idea of opening up their own oyster bar. And we went, and that ended up translating into their first location at the Mount Vernon Marketplace. And to say it exceeded our expectations would be like a wild understatement. Um, you know, the volume and the success they've had is, is just incredible, but equally or more importantly, they've taken that one conversation that he and I had on the corner in front of a hardware store in the middle of December, they now have three oyster bars, um, and they have a full service restaurant open and operating called Chu Chesapeake Oyster House. Um, that's been open now for about two years, you know, wildly critically acclaimed, uh, Esquire magazine did a write up on it in, in the business, uh, I think last year, just before, um, the pandemic there. Uh, I know they're under development right now on a New Orleans style restaurant. So literally they're, you know, in, in a couple of years time, they've been able to take a conversation on the corner in front of a buck a shuck oyster concept and a hardware, in, on a hardware sidewalk, right. Into a multi-unit concept uh, that ranges from a oyster bar concept all the way to a full service restaurant. Um, that's pretty cool. Right. And, and that's like what things, you know, the, the beauty of these food halls is that you know we're putting businesses like that into place. I mean, our average business, right? Over fifty percent of our businesses are, are minority or women-owned businesses. Um, majority of them, I think, well over seventy percent, are unique concepts. Like these are one-off opportunities. That you know, the goal is they become the local oyster, right? The goal is that they become a viable, successful business that can be replicated if that operator wants it to be. Um, and to see that actually happen is, is is special, and it's you know, definitely a fun story. So. 
That is an amazing story. The Buckashuck turned into multiple venues. They operate in one of your food halls today? Yeah, they operate in the Mount Vernon Marketplace in Baltimore. Um, it's been open and operating since uh, October of 2015. Um, and they are also down in Boston at the Boston Quarter. Um, and then they've got another market in uh, Federal Hill uh, ready to open. Wow. So he's doing better than he was shucking oysters in front of the hardware store today. I think so. <laughs> that is incredible. I think that's a, you know what that's really a lesson about to me is don't be afraid to have conversations with people. You have conversations with people, you never know where they might go. You know, the old story of, you know, have a conversation with the person on the plane when you're flying, you know, shake the person's hand next to you in a non COVID when we, we don't have to socially distance in that world, shake the person's hand, say hello and learn about the person next to you. And you never know what might come from it. And the opportunity you created because of that is truly remarkable. How long before he shucked an oyster for, for you, you had a conversation to the real ideation of going into one of your public markets or one of your food halls? Um, I mean, so the conversation he and I had was in December of 14 and they opened in October of 15. Wow. So, you know, it was pretty quick. Um, honestly, I, I don't think, so I followed, we, 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 we stayed in touch, but if I remember correctly, it wasn't until late that spring that the idea really came together of 15. So it was probably a good solid four or five months of, of, you know, light conversation, but not really, because he also had to figure out a relationship with Patrick and there was all kinds of other um, things at play there. I think the, the deal ultimately ended up getting cut in June and they opened in October. Wow. One last question in, in that, uh, that may, reminded me that I didn't ask in the, in the previous segment, how long are the leases typically in a food hall? Sure. Um, so for us, uh, our average term uh, is uh, right around four years, um, just under, frankly. So what does that really mean? Because nobody signs like a 3.9 year lease, right, uh, from a retail perspective. And by the way, um, I would say in most of our markets, we've transitioned actually away from a, a lease. Um, majority of our vendors actually sign license agreements, not leases. Um, that being said, um, our average agreement length is just under four years right now. Uh, about 45% of our vendors, a little less, sign five-year terms. Um, about 30% sign three-year terms. Um, and the balance are widely elsewhere. Um, we, won't, we really won't do anything longer than seven. Um, and we do have a number of our markets where uh, we do six-month to 12-month deals, even pre-COVID. Um, we have this little space in Mount Vernon that we've continually used as kind of a test kitchen of sorts, although ironically it has no kitchen, um, to, to try things out and test them. Um, and a lot of our markets, we've had the ability uh, to do that in. So we've done pop-ups and short-term deals as well. Wow. Are you seeing other successes like the buck shuck guy? Are you seeing other successes where this turns into something remarkable like that? To me, that's remarkable. Guys on the corner shucking oysters for a dollar in front of the hardware store. It turns into not only a couple food hall locations, but a, a restaurant, a sit down restaurant location. Are, yeah, is this success story everywhere? Look, um, it, we've been very fortunate to see it often, you know, and, and, and I think that's 
part, partly us, partly finding the right people and also way more them and their execution and their passion, right? Um, and, and to be a great operator in a food hall, um, it, it's like the three Ps, you know, it's product, passion, and people. Um, if, if you don't have all three of those, um, you're going to struggle. If you have all three of those, you have the recipe um, for being very successful, you know, and we've had the ability in our markets to see that more than more than once. And, you know, like, you know, at Cross Street Market, a market, public market that we opened up roughly a little over a year ago, um, you know, two vendors come to mind there. I mean, we've got uh, Gangster Vegan. Uh, it's a franchise concept. And, and the franchisee, this was the two teachers came together, um, husband and wife. And uh, Tanisha, the, the wife, is just an absolutely remarkable woman. Uh, nothing to take away from her husband, but, you know, she's a rock star. And again, it's the kind of person you like, you can't help, but want to put your arms around pre COVID and give a hug. Um, She's just awesome. And um, you know, she um, had cancer and through cancer um, realized kind of the value of eating healthy and, you know, all the nutrients and the oxidants and things that come from that kind of lifestyle choice. And she was to really took that passion and that focus of her um, in, and, take on this business and opened it and was, had been wildly successful since then she's opened two more locations and signed another lease with us. Um, you know, Incredible. which is unbelievable. And by the way, in the middle of all this had another unfortunate cancer scare um, and had rebound from that. And she's going through chemo while signing. I mean, she's just, she's unbelievable. Right. Um, we have another uh, husband and wife um, owners of Sobichi Haitian cuisine, right? You, you say Haitian and most people are like, what is that? Um, it's, Similar to Jamaican in a lot of ways, very jerk, kind of stew-focused uh, cuisine. But you know, we found uh, Chanel and Leo uh, literally basically in a, in a street market um, that Baltimore City was operating, um, and we're able to bring them in and give them an opportunity to open up a cross-street market, and you know, wildly successful. And you know, you can't go by his stall without him engaging you. Um, and it's just he's got that kind of just outgoing personality, and he has this big smile. And he engages you and then you immediately try the food and it's fantastic. And, you know, he just gets people hooked. Right. And I think that that, that business uh, is going to end up going places down the road. Um, and we're just excited to see what, where they're able to take it. Um, and, you know, obviously the pandemic and everything has, has thrown a wrench into a lot of these people's lives and situations, and we're doing everything we can really to help them. And, you know, our, our basic philosophy, right. As an operator is if you're doing everything you can, we're going to do everything we can to help you. And, you know, we've kind of really stuck by that. And so, but there, there are lots of stories like that. Um, and, and almost every one of our markets has at least one, if not multiple ones. Unbelievable. I want to try them all. We've got two minutes left. I want to get to our last piece of the show called retail wisdom. Sure. And I think a lot of our listeners are, would love for me to dig into a little bit more of the cost. There's a lot about, how these food halls cost so much and it's hard to actually make return as a landlord on these. So maybe we'll do a, a little quick YouTube clip or something like that. In some point in time, we could talk about, you know, sure. Happy to. The, the profitability of some of these food halls. We didn't get there, but food hall, one-on-one. Bring, food hall one-on-one, but I want to bring it to retail wisdom and the last three questions of the show. You ready? Absolutely. All right. Question one, what extinct retailer do you wish would come back from the dead? Hmm. Cohen's Clothiers from a retail perspective, local clothing shop that, you know, as a kid growing up, 
I bought everything from swimming suits to, you know, my first blazer um, was family owned for, I think, a hundred years. Wow. Um, and just, it was a shop that if you were in the Baltimore area that I live in, everybody went there. Um, and to see Excellent. something like that not exist for my kids, it's just disappointing. And they had impeccable tastes and, you know, you get everything from casual to literally formal product. It's pretty, pretty incredible. Um, from a food perspective, because I have to answer somewhat for what I am with food for a second, if I can. Um, so I went to school up in Connecticut in New Haven. Um, I would tell you that I miss Cafe Odulis. Uh, it was an Eritrean restaurant um, and their shrimp barca is like dreams made of, like <laughs> still talks about it. Um, and the only other thing would be the Yankee doodle in New Haven. They had a fried donut. They, they, they literally took a donut, cut it in half, slabbed more butter on it and put it on the flat top. And then you could turn it into a breakfast sandwich. This was before Instagram and before anybody was doing anything like this. Uh, it was, it was legit good. Wow. Sounds it. Second question. What's the last product you bought for over $20 in a store? In a store? Yes. Uh, golf shoes. What store? Dick's actually. All right. Yeah. Um, golf shoes are, so the last pair of golf shoes, I, I'm like a, a, a struggling golf hack, basically. Like I'm good enough that I, I, I understand tend to be good. Um, I think the last pair of shoes I bought was like nine years ago. It's not something like, I love Zappos. I feel like if you're going to buy golf shoes and you have no idea where the technology or changes are going, like it's the kind of product, like you want to go in and try like all of them. Yeah. Make a decision. So last question. Sure. If you and I were shopping at target and I lost you, what aisle would I find you in? Either the electronics section or the tea and coffee section. Tea and coffee. I like it. Well, listen, Mike, this has been great. Thank you so much for playing my game at the end there. We're going to catch up. We're going to do another Zoom clip on Food Hall 101. We're going to talk about a little bit the cost structure, and we'll share that with the world. Sound good, man? Absolutely. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at DLC mgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.